Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 25th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Bob Nichols, an attorney with Floyd, Skerritt and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Caution, you are about to enter the workers' compensation zone. Now, let's get started with our litigation report. All right. Um, the Court of Appeal rejected a workers' tort case based upon a theory of an employer's fraudulent concealment of an injury. What happened is in the case of Sinclair versus Praxair Incorporated. Jeff Sinclair worked for Praxair collecting and testing soil, water, and air samples from potentially contaminated sites. During his employment, he underwent annual physical examinations. Several of his annual physical examinations after 1993 showed he had high blood urea, nitrogen, and creatinine levels, both evidence of renal disease and the medical examiner said he should follow up with his own physician. Although Sinclair received copies of all his annual examination results, he never reviewed them and therefore never complied with the recommendation to follow up with his personal physician. Nonetheless, his personal physician diagnosed him with renal disease in 1994, and he admittedly knew of the diagnosis at least since 1996. At the time, his physician attributed his renal disease to gout. In 2009, after another examination, he was diagnosed with stage four renal failure and became disabled from work. A workers' compensation qualified medical examiner determined 85% of the cause of his renal disease was from work-related chemical exposures. The Sinclair subsequently sued Praxair for civil damages. Their complaint alleged Praxair intentionally concealed that workplace chemical exposures both caused and aggravated Sinclair's re renal disease. Praxair moved for a summary judgment, arguing the Sinclair's could not establish their claims fell within the fraudulent concealment exception to the workers' compensation exclusivity doctrine because Sinclair knew he had renal disease. The Superior Court agreed and granted summary judgment to Praxair. Now, the Court of Appeal affirmed in an unpublished decision of Sinclair versus Praxair, Inc., an employee injured during the course of employment is generally limited to remedies under the Workers' Compensation Act. There are three conditions for the fraudulent concealment exception to apply. First, the employer must have concealed the existence of the injury. Secondly, the employer must have concealed the connection between the injury and his employment. And finally, the injury must have been aggravated following the concealment. If any of these conditions is lacking, the exception does not apply and the employer is entitled to judgment in its favor. Now here, the undisputed evidence shows Sinclair was diagnosed with renal disease in 1994 and knew of it at, of the diagnosis as early as 1996. Consequently, the Sinclairs cannot establish the first element of the fraudulent concealment exception that Praxair concealed the existence of his injury from him. Now, three National Hockey, Hockey League concussion suits have been consolidated in a Minnesota federal court. A special panel assigned the cases to U.S. District Judge Susan Richard Nelson of St. Paul. Minnesota provides a central location for parties and witnesses, including those from Canada. The order consolidates lawsuits filed by more than 200 former players in Minnesota, New York, and Washington. Judge Nelson was already presiding over one of the three cases. The lawsuits are similar to those filed on behalf of ex-NFL players, which resulted in an $870 million settlement. 
The uh, National Collegiate Athletic Association, Association agreed to a $70 million settlement in another similar concussion lawsuit. Now, you've heard of those before. The NHL has been hit with five different concussion lawsuits since November of 2013, when the first group of 10 ex-players filed in a federal court in Washington. The second was filed in April that included former NHL players Dan Wilkuter, Dan Kexmer, and Mike Peluso. But one case lost credibility by claiming NHL legend Gordie Howe died in 2009 from a neurodegenerative disease called Pick's disease. Now, the third suit was also filed in April in Minneapolis by retired player Dave Christian, Reed Larson, and William Bennett. Lawsuit numbers four and five were filed this past summer and featured former Bruins defenseman John Roloff, ex-Columbus forward Dan Fritschke, and former Ranger Chris Ferraro. The consolidation order says all five suits may eventually be joined into one. Now, some NHL players have workers' compensation claims pending in California for these injuries. And one wonders why. And now, one of my personal and professional favorites, our fraud report. An insurance broker has been charged with creating a fake insurance company in order to steal workers' compensation premiums. For any of you who are familiar with the TV shows on American Theft and Greed, this is a good one. 27-year-old Jacob Richard Bonzer, formerly of Lake Forest, California, was arrested in Chicago on 96 felony counts, including grand theft, forgery, and denial of benefits. If convicted, he faces a maximum sentence of more than 87 years in state prison. Now, Bonzer allegedly created more than 1,000 insurance policies based on fraudulent information, which allowed him to collect $280,000 $5,000 in unearned commission payments. Investigators discovered that Bonzer created a fictitious insurance company called GW Mutual Risk Retention Group, LLC, which was registered in Florida. GW Mutual is not licensed to write insurance in California, though Bonzer sold workers' compensation and commercial insurance policies through his agency, Bonzer Insurance Brokerage, located in Orange County. Now, Bonzer collected approximately $280,000 in premiums from 58 California businesses that believed they were purchasing valid coverage. He provided an altered CDI report when questioned by a client about GW's ability to offer insurance in California. Now, premium payments entrusted to Bonzer were used on personal living expenses, including the rental of luxury high-rise apartments, travel, wine clubs, and fine dining. Bonzer also submitted 128 fraudulent homeowner insurance claim applications containing bogus information using non-existent policyholders for real properties, causing valid policies to be issued for phantom homeowners in escrow. He received $46,000 in advance commissions from the insurance company that expected to collect premiums when the properties closed escrow. The insurer never received premiums, and Bonzer was eventually fired. He continued his scam, though, duh, to another agent after he was fired. Approximately 790 fraudulent homeowner insurance applications containing bogus information were submitted by Bonzer under another agent. For this, he received an additional $239,000 of commission payments. 
He orchestrated these elaborate scams by listing multiple post office boxes, virtual assistants, business entities, office spaces, email accounts, website domains, and bank accounts. The Department of Insurance has, been, has reason to believe that there are additional victims. Anyone who did business with Jacob Bonzer or believe they may be a victim are encouraged to contact the Department of Insurance Supervising Investigator Vera Grunke at 714-712-7600. Now, a granite installer now faces 30 years in jail for double dipping. An employee for building remodeling company is charged with chasing 24,000 in disability checks after telling doctors he could not work. This one's gonna sound familiar to many of you. It was later learned that he was working somewhere else, installing granite where he earned $54,000. 51-year-old Angel Mungzan of Santa Ana was charged with 24 felony counts of insurance fraud, seven felony counts of perjury under oath, and four felony counts of making fraudulent statements. If convicted, he could get up to 30 years in state prison. He lost his balance by working for Fermol Inc. in Huntington Beach in 2010 when he dropped a large piece of granite that landed on his right thigh and knee. He was placed on temporary total disability and received more than $24,000 in TTD benefits. But actually, he kept working as a granite installer on a new job while illegally continuing to accept disability benefits. He is accused of making matters worse for himself in 2013 when he allegedly lied in a deposition. He claimed under oath to not have worked and not performed any activities involving granite since the date of the injury. Video evidence showed him working on manual labor projects similar to those performed prior to his injury. Now, the former owner of a Los Angeles medical clinic management company pleaded guilty in connection with his role in a scheme to defraud Medicare. 37-year-old Miron Mike Megurian of Glendale, California, pleaded guilty in a federal district court in the Central District of California to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud. Megurian owned MedServe Management, a medical clinic management company located in Van Nuys, California. He admitted that he engaged in a conspiracy to commit health care fraud and that he oversaw medical clinics that wrote prescriptions for medically unnecessary durable medical equipment. Remember that. Megurian and his co-conspirators then sold the prescriptions to DME supply companies knowing that the prescriptions were fraudulent. The DME supply companies submitted the fraudulent prescriptions to Medicare and false and fraudulent claims. These DME supply companies submitted over $3 million in fraudulent claims using fraudulent prescriptions from Megurian's clinics. McGarry's sentencing is scheduled for November 17th. This case was investigated by the FBI and was brought as part of the Medicare Fraud Strike Force. The Medicare Fraud Strike Force is now operating in nine cities across the country. It has charged more than 1,900 defendants who have collectively billed the Medicare program more than $6 billion. And in regulatory news, the DEA will reclassify hydrocodone, remember that hydrocodone combination products from Schedule 3 to a Schedule 2 narcotic, which will help limit the epidemic of prescription drug abuse, which is just getting out of hand. 
The new final rule was recommended by the Assistant Secretary for Health of the United States Department of Health and Human Resources and supported by the DEA's own evaluation of relevant data. The final rule imposes the regulatory controls and sanctions applicable to Schedule II substances on those who handle or propose to handle hydrocodone product combinations, or HCPs. The final rule has been published in the Federal Register and goes into effect in 45 days. The Federal Controlled Substances Act places substances within accepted medical uses into one of four schedules. Substances with the highest potential for harm and abuse are placed in Schedule II, and substances with less progressively potential harm for, and abuse are placed in Schedule III through V. HCPs are drugs that contain both hydrocodone, which is itself a Schedule II drug, and specific amounts of other substances such as acetaminophen or aspirin. Almost 7 million Americans abuse controlled substance prescriptions medications, including opioid painkillers, resulting in more deaths from prescription drug overdoses and auto accidents. Do you believe that? When Congress passed the Controlled Substances Act in 1970, it placed HCPs in Schedule III, even though it had placed hydrocodone itself in Schedule II. But current studies show that HCPs have a high potential for abuse that may lead to severe psychological or physical dependence. Adding non-narcotic substances like acetaminophen to hydrocodone does not diminish its abuse potential. And data and surveys from multiple federal and non-federal agencies show the extent of abuse of HCPs. In general, substances placed under the control of the CSA since it was passed by Congress in 1970 are scheduled or rescheduled by the DEA as required. Scheduling or rescheduling of a substance can be initiated by the DEA, by the HHS Assistant Secretary of Health, or on the petition of any interested party. In this case, the rescheduling of HCPs was initiated by a petition from a physician in 1999. The DEA submitted a request for HHS for a scientific and medical evaluation of HCPs and a scheduling recommendation. Now, a new Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation study confirms much higher workers' compensation claim costs in Southern California region. The 214-page study called the Examination of California Public Sector Self-Insured Workers' Compensation Programs is available on the CHSWC work website for public comment. The study was part of a SB 863 reforms required by Labor Code Section 3702.4 to examine the public sector self-insured workers' compensation program and to make recommendations for improvement. All right, CHSW contracted with Bickmore to assist with this study. Recent municipal bankruptcies have drawn attention to public entity employers and the adequacy of the resources they possess to meet their workers' compensation obligations. Now, it's unclear what the impact to employees and taxpayers would be in the event that large or multi multiple public entities become unable to provide for their workers' compensation liabilities. That could be a major problem. The study found that a self-insurer's geographic location within the state of California has a significant impact on claim costs. Self-insurers in Southern California have experienced higher claim frequency, higher average claim size, and higher overall costs per $100 of payroll.
Worse yet, over the past several years, this disparity between Southern California and the rest of the state has increased. In addition, claims of Southern California self-insurers tend to stay open longer in comparison to those in the rest of the state. The analysis of insurance company data by the WCIRB has also pointed to disparities between claim frequencies and costs between different regions of the state. The current analysis confirms that these disparities also exist for public self-insurers. Since one of the goals of the workers' compensation system to have equal treatment of and benefit for injured workers, the authors of the new study say it is worth exploring the root causes of this disparity. The type of agency also has a major impact on the loss rates, claim sizes, and claim frequencies. Municipalities tend to have the highest costs, whereas educational entities such as schools, colleges, universities have the lowest. Over the past several years, the cost of municipal claims has risen at a faster pace than that of counties or educational entities. This is primarily due to increases in the average claim size. Also, claims of education, self-insurers tend to close faster in comparison to those of counties and cities. In general, JPAs have experienced lower costs per $100 of payroll than individual self-insurers. However, JPA costs have been increasing at a faster rate than those of individual self-insurers over the past several years. Figure that out. The study also found almost no difference in loss rates between self-insurers that utilize the TPA versus those that self-administer. Those that self-administer tend to have a higher claim frequency, but this is offset by a lower average claim size. In addition, loss rates have been increasing at a slower pace for those that self-administer than for those that utilize a TPA. Uh, the DWC has now set a public hearing on changes to the outpatient and ambulatory surgical center fee schedule. The hearing has been set for 10 a.m. September 18th in the auditorium of the Eliyahu Harris Building, 1515 Clay Street in Oakland, California. Members of the public may also submit written comments on the regulations until 5 p.m. that day. Labor Code Section 5307.1 provides that for the maximum fee for services performed in a hospital outpatient department shall not exceed 120% of the fee paid by Medicare for the same services performed in a hospital outpatient department. After 2013, SB 863 provided that the maximum facility fee shall not exceed 80% of the fee paid by Medicare for the same services performed in a hospital outpatient department. The acting administrative director amended the fee schedule to implement Senate Bill 863 as it relates to these charges. The fee schedule is updated annually by the administrative director's order. The objective of this new rulemaking action is to correct the payment methodology for, quote, other services, end quote, that are paid according to the RBRV's practice expense relative value units. The notice and text of the regulation can be found on the proposed regulations page. Now, the DWC has also posted a first 15-day notice of modification to the proposed medical treatment utilization schedule regulations to its website. The MTUS is established as a standard for provision of medical care in the workers' compensation system in accordance with Labor Code Section 4600. The proposed amendments to the MIDAS 
clarified the scientific process by which evidence-based clinical decisions are to be made when the MTUS is silent on a particular issue. The amendment also describes how the MTUS may be rebutted pursuant to Labor Code Section 4604.5. The proposed regulations detail an explicit, systematic, strength of evidence methodology to determine if a request for treatment is supported with the best available evidence. The proposed modifications include a revision of the definition of ACOM by deleting the reference to the second edition 2004 version and adding a brief description of what the guidelines contain. There is also a revision of the definition of chronic pain by adding a three-month timeline from the initial onset of pain. The definition of medline is deleted because this term is no longer used in the regulations. There is now clarification that treating physicians may apply the medical literature search sequence and specifies when UR and IMR physicians shall apply the medical literature search sequence to find the best available medical evidence. There was a public hearing on this regulation in July. The, re the transcript reflects the testimony of seven individuals. An official with the office, official disability guidelines said he was in full support of these guidelines but was concerned about who was required to rank the evidence. A spokesman for the California Society of Industrial Medicine and Surgery had similar concerns. The notice and text of the regulations can be found on the proposed regulations page. And in medical news, there's some good stuff, the new study in the August issue of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery says that 20% of orthopedic patients doctor shop for opiates. Back to our previous story. The data was presented earlier this year at the 2014 annual meeting of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Doctor shopping, the growing practice of obtaining narcotic prescriptions from multiple providers, has led to measurable increases in drug use among post-operative trauma patients. Researchers reviewed prescription records for 151 adult patients that admitted to an orthopedic unit at a level one trauma center. The authors reviewed data on narcotic prescriptions obtained three months before and within six months after each patient's orthopedic procedure. And the research found that 20.8% of the patients sought prescription pain medications from multiple providers. When compared to patients who have continued to receive prescriptions and care from a single provider, the, quote, doctor shoppers, end quote, use narcotics four times longer than single provider patients. They also obtained a median of 70 of seven narcotic prescriptions compared to two prescriptions for single provider patients. They had a higher morphine equivalent dose of narcotics each day, and they were 4.5 times more likely to seek out an additional provider if they had a history of preoperative narcotic use. Thus, researchers concluded that one of five orthopedic trauma patients obtained narcotic prescription drugs from another provider after surgery while still receiving narcotic prescriptions from the treating surgeon. Americans consume 80% of the global opioid supply and 99% of the global hydrocodone supply. This alarming rise in unintentional overdose deaths in the United States is largely due to the increases in prescription narcotic drug overdoses. Now that's all our news for this week, and please check our website daily for news updates 
past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Bob Nichols, Senior Trial Lawyer with Floyd, Garrett & Kelly, and thanks for joining us. Drop by again next week for more news. See you later.